that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Today, something pretty extraordinary happened in the courtroom here in Washington. Lawyers for Donald Trump and lawyers from the special counsel's office made their arguments about what the former president should and should not be allowed to say about the criminal case against him. The focus of this hearing was the limited gag order imposed on Trump. But when you take a step back, you can see that it was about much more than that. It was about how far the First Amendment really should go and how it should be applied to a former president who is also a criminal defendant, who is also a candidate for the presidency once again, and the leading one at that. Former general counsel for the RNC, Ben Ginsburg, has handled some very novel legal cases in his day, but never one like this. I'm going to ask him all about all of it in just a moment. And as new concerns about Trump's ability to incite violence continue to surface, former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is going to join me right here in studio as well. But we do want to start tonight in that federal appeals court here in Washington where for over two hours to get today, we listened, we all listened to a debate over the constitutionality of a gag order on Donald Trump. And the key word there is listened. We heard everything with our own ears, which was an incredibly important moment of transparency, one that deeply serves the public interest, especially in a case like this, and with a defendant like Trump, where misinformation can spread so rapidly and so easily, often by him. And at its core, Today was a clash between two values, the right of a candidate to exercise free speech and the right of a judge to ensure fair justice. Listen to the special counsel's office argue why a gag order here is necessary to protect witnesses and a jury at trial. When the defendant engaged in repeated inflammatory personal attacks on someone, there is a causal link between that person then receiving harassment, threats, and intimidation. And now listen to Trump's lawyer make his case against it. Gag order in this case installs a single federal district judge as a filter for core political speech between a leading presidential candidate and virtually every American voter in the United States at the very height of a presidential campaign. The order is unprecedented and it sets a terrible precedent for future restrictions on core political speech. Now, Let's remember, as it stands right now, this is already a very narrow gag order. Trump is still allowed to criticize the Justice Department, President Biden, we've seen him do a lot of that, and even the judge overseeing this case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, he can say a lot. He's allowed to maintain that the prosecution itself was a partisan retaliation against him, one of his favorite talking points. He just cannot target prosecutors, potential witnesses, or court employees. So really, he's still allowed to say quite a bit about this case, quite a bit about a lot of things. In that way, this gag order is kind of like the First Amendment itself. It protects free speech, but includes limitations. Remember, you can't scream fire in a crowded theater. You can't incite lawless action, like urging a mob to attack a building. You can't just go out there and tell defamatory lies. There are certain exceptions, and really for good reason, because words are powerful. Words carry enormous weight. Of course they have an impact especially when you're a former president. 
Now, Trump's lawyers tried to argue today that there hasn't been proof linking Trump's rhetoric to the violent acts of others. But as one of the judges pointed out, the purpose of a gag order is to actually prevent those actions before they happen. As this trial approaches, the atmosphere is going to be increasingly tense. Why does the district court have to wait and see and wait for the threats to come rather than taking a, a reasonable action in advance? Now, we all know Trump has a long history of violent rhetoric, unfortunately, a habit of intimidating witnesses publicly, not to mention a pattern of lashing out at judges and juries just trying to do their job. And that's what they're trying to do here. I think we have a pretty good sense of what he'll say in the future. We've seen the real impact of his words as well. So what are we waiting for? For someone to be seriously hurt? For the jury to be tainted? Or for a witness to bow out for fear of being punished? And while, yes, it is true that no presidential candidate has dealt with these restrictions before, that's true historically, no candidate has pushed the envelope like this before either. This was an unprecedented hearing in the middle of an unprecedented political and legal moment, all because of the unprecedented behavior of Donald Trump. Starting us off today is former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me this evening as we're all trying to make sense of this. So I just want to start. What about you listened to the hearing this morning. What was your biggest takeaway from it? Well, almost exactly what you said. This is a clash of core values. The First Amendment on one hand, which is not absolute, of mm -hmm. course, could, and it could not be. And the um, imperative that a judge do everything in her power to ensure a fair trial. And these two things may be in conflict because of Mr. Trump's rhetoric. There was a line of questioning today um, on what Trump is allowed to say, including about witnesses like Mark Milley and Mike Pence, who were public figures. And that was sort of one of the points of discussion. What did you make of that discussion today? Well, Mr. Milley and Mr. Pence are also witnesses. So let me say a word about that. Mm -hmm. I was a prosecutor for a long time, Jen. You know, prosecutors are important, defense attorneys are important, judges are important. But when you're talking about a trial at its very core, at its very heart, are the two most important groups of people, mm -hmm. the jurors mm. and the witnesses. Witnesses are unique to a case. If a judge gets sick, another judge can take the bench. If mm -hmm. a prosecutor gets sick, another prosecutor can take her place. That's not true with witnesses. And so if a judge is going to protect anything mm -hmm. in a trial— it has to be the witnesses. And we know that Mr. Trump's words have consequences because the people he has singled out for criticism have been threatened. Does that dissuade a witness from testifying? Does he or she change their testimony mm. because of it? If you're going to protect anything, Jen, protect the witnesses. This is such an interesting, important point as a non-lawyer, that it's not obviously violence and somebody acting on it is scary and that wants, everybody wants to prevent that. But it's also about not having witnesses not participate or drop out or change what they do, right? That's well, a big part of this. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, without witnesses, you literally don't have a trial. The folks who saw something, heard something, read something, you know, those are the people who are core to a trial. And while you're right, the judge's original gag order, the one that is currently stayed, which is sort of off pending on the side, was narrow. Perhaps the Court of Appeals narrows it. Mm. But I can't imagine that they're going to permit Mr. Trump to attack witnesses. Again, the very core, the very fabric of a trial are the men and women who take the stand, put their hand in the air and promise to tell the truth. Without them, you don't have a justice system. So it sounds like you were just saying you just said that you think they may narrow it. And what would that look like exactly? Well, it'll probably look a lot like the the uh, gag order that you have now, the one that's on appeal, except that perhaps 
you permit Mr. Trump to criticize prosecutors. I was a prosecutor. I don't like being criticized. I certainly don't like being threatened, mm -hmm. but I can live with it. But I could not abide anyone threatening one of my witnesses. That is um, a, a, a step too far. And so, you know, if you ask four lawyers to write a gag order, each one might do it a little bit differently. Now you've had four judges weigh in on it. It may look a little bit different. But you need one in this case because a judge not, has not just the authority to ensure a fair trial, but the obligation to ensure a fair trial. And it seems, unfortunately, in this case, that one way to ensure a fair trial is to um, cabin what Mr. Trump says in advance of it. And what could the, I mean, the, the question is, what could the consequences be? Because yeah. his behavior doesn't really seem to change. Right. So How do they consider that? Yeah, great question. So let's say we get over the drafting issue, what the gag order looks like. Then the judge has to actually enforce it. Hard to believe that Mr. Trump will radically change his behavior. So assume, Jen, that he continues to threaten witnesses, right? Then what does the judge do? She has a couple of options, mm -hmm. right? She could hold him in civil contempt. She could seek to have him held in criminal contempt. But that requires a whole different, more complicated proceeding. If it's only civil contempt, which is an effort to get someone to comply with an order, she could reprimand him, she could mm. fine him. But it's going to be very hard, once we get past this hurdle, and we will, to enforce the order. That is the big question. Chuck Rosenberg, thank you so much, as always. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. For more on today's hearing, I want to bring in Ben Ginsburg. He's the former general counsel for the Republican National Committee, and he testified before the House Committee investigating January 6th. So, Ben, thank you again for joining me this evening. I, I wanted to start, just this gag order has been kind of on again, off again for more than a month. We've all been kind of watching it and trying to follow it closely. Where do you think, as you've been watching this, the court will draw the line between free speech and something that could compromise the proceeding, as we've just been talking about? Oh, I suppose you can sum it up by saying there'll be, um, there'll be free speech, there'll be no bullying, devil is in the details. And so my guess is what we're going to see for uh, up until the trial actually starts is orders given, prosecutors or Trump lawyers going to court to try and amend it, and it will be a back and forth. And as you and Chuck just discussed, the actual enforcement of a violation of a gag order is really, really difficult. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a very difficult part of this. It sounds like, though, what you're saying here is we're not looking at an end, even when there's a ruling here, that there's going to be a lot of back and forth over the next couple of months. Is that what we should expect? Yeah, I think it is on the on the subject of the gag order. I mean, Donald Trump is obviously blending in his his political campaign with his trials. Yeah, I think he's approaching the trials as maybe his best form for his politics. And putting aside the wisdom of that judgment, it means that he is going to say things that may not uh, line up with everybody's in interpretation of what a gag order says. So you'll have a lot of these hearings back and forth. Yeah. So let me ask you about the wisdom of that judgment, because it seems like outside of the courtroom and maybe sometimes even inside the courtroom, the argument being made by Trump and his team is that this is good for them, that this is helping them politically. Do you agree with that? I think it is true for the primaries. It's obviously not hurting them at all and really helping them in the primaries. But the general election is going to be different. 
The general election, assuming that both parties can drive out their bases, will come down to maybe a couple hundred thousand swing voters in four, six, maybe seven states. Those swing voters are all suburban, moderate Republicans. And the harshness of the rhetoric uh, is, I think, playing differently on the ears of suburban parents uh, mm-hmm. than it does on the deep Republican base in, in primaries. Yeah, it's certainly something. It's such a different electorate, to your point. So b- back to what happened in yeah. the courtroom today. The judges not only pressed Trump's lawyer, but they, but also the special counsel's office on the scope of the order. They kind of were tough on both, as, as I was listening. This exchange, which I want to listen to, came after the judge brought up Mark Milley's book criticizing Trump and asked whether he would be able to respond to it. So let's listen to that in case people haven't heard it, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. So what's not fair game? So he, ha- he can comment. Yes. And he can comment very critically. What can he not do? Use the sort of inflammatory language that poses a, a significant risk that they will be subject to threats, harassment, and intimidation. If the defendant were to say, you know, not by, with any reference to their testimony, but say this person, you know, is uh, a, a coward, a liar, and a treason, and deserves a punishment of death, without any reference to what the substance of their testimony would be, I think that would still violate the order. So they clearly also pushed back against the special counsel's argument. It sounds like the scope of it. Do you expect, Chuck was just saying he thinks it will be narrowed. What what do you expect uh, the judge will do in this case? Yeah, I agree with that. I think it'll be narrowed. Um, I I think that you've got to allow a presidential candidate some ability to criticize the people of the other party who are bringing these cases against them. And so there is going to be some leeway, but it, it will be narrowed in terms of the people who he can say, but but as you heard in that back and forth, the devil is going to be in the details in mm-hmm. terms of the actual words that are used. Ben Ginsburg, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. I really appreciate it. Okay. And coming up, brand new audio of Donald Trump is bolstering key testimony that Cassidy Hutchinson gave to the January 6th committee about what the former president wanted to do that day. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson is standing by here in the studio, and she joins me after a quick break. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. At the heart of the arguments made before the D.C. appeals court today was the impact of Donald Trump's words and whether they can lead to violence. We're still waiting to see what this panel of judges will determine in that specific case, but others have answered this question before. 
In a 2022 case involving Trump's civil liability on January 6th, a U.S. district judge compared Trump's January 6th speech to, quote, telling an excited mob that corn dealers starve, starve the, poor, the poor in front of the corn dealer's home and that the speech could reasonably be viewed as a call for collective action. I love the corn dealer reference there. Another district judge in a criminal case against the January 6th defendant said Trump's words absolutely stoked the flames of fear and discontent and explicitly encouraged those at the rally to go to the Capitol and fight. And then late Friday, a judge in Colorado came to the conclusion that Trump incited an insurrection. It's also worth remembering Trump didn't just cause the events of January 6th. He also wanted to participate in them. He wanted to go. He told the Washington Post in the spring of 2022 that he would have gone in a minute if the Secret Service had let him. A few months later, in testimony before the January 6th committee, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who's sitting right here with me, told me told more of the story. When the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen. And when Bobby Head relayed to him, we're not. We don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. Now recently released audio of Donald Trump speaking with Jonathan Carl of ABC News reveals that Trump thought he'd be welcomed by the violent mob. You told them you were going to go up to the Capitol. Were you just... I was, no, I was going to, and the Secret Service said, you can't. And then by the time I would have, and then when I got back, I saw, I wanted to go back. I was thinking about going back during the problem to stop the problem, doing it myself. Secret Service didn't like that idea too much. So, so what... And I could so, have done that. And you know what? I would have been very well received. I would have been very well received. Just remember those words. Joining me now is former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. Thank you so much for being here with me. Every time I watch that footage of you testifying, I just think of how courageous that was and how much poise that required. So I hope when you watch it, that's how you feel as well. But I wanted to talk to you about Trump's words, because we heard Trump's lawyers today, earlier this morning, downplay the impact of his words. That was essentially their argument. And yet January 6th is, of course, a glaring example of people following his direction. You talked about this a lot in your book. Do you think he recognizes the impact of his words? Uh, thank you for having me, Jen. And yes, I absolutely, I, I believe that he knows the impact of his words. And I believe that because I've heard him say it. And mm. I think when you, know, you his, heard him say, I know people listen to me. Or yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's evident, too, from just how he's been able to get away with how often he has tweeted and the rhetoric of his tweets. You know, Donald Trump knows the impact his words have. He knew when he put out the tweet on December 19th, 2020, when he summoned the mob to come to Washington, D.C., that he was going to expect a crowd. That's why he continued pushing and pushing and pushing that rhetoric and pushing those invitations to all of his supporters that ended up coming to, J to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So when Donald Trump says something, I think that we as a nation do a big disservice to our own constituents and our neighbors when we don't take what he says at face value. That's so important for people to remember. You, you talk in your book, you write about the impact of Trump's words. I mean, this is something you kind of explore, including how Trump's tweet about his vice president on January 6th promoted chance of hang Mike, Mike Pence, something that is haunting every time I hear it. You also write that, according to Mark Meadows, Trump said he deserves it. That's really scary. It's still scary to hear. 
Are you nervous? I mean, you know a, a number of the people, former colleagues who are going to be witnesses. Are, are you nervous about their safety when you hear Trump's words and you see what he's doing out there publicly? Yes, I am. And I, I know from my experience, too, you know, the American people should not ever have to live in fear of retribution from a president of the United States or a former president of the United States. A president is here and is elected to protect the people, not to incite violence on those people. I think about myself, but more importantly, too, I think about men like Rusty Bowers, who was cornered mm-hmm. in his home. I think about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. I think about members of Congress Georgia, on yeah. the January mm-hmm. 6th committee who needed security details, or even up until a few weeks ago during the Speaker's race, how there were members who weren't voting for mm-hmm. Jim Jordan, who had violence unleashed on them. And there are Republicans just because they were not planning to vote for the individual that Trump had personally mm-hmm. endorsed. This violence is, has become, unfortunately, somewhat normalized in our mm-hmm. society. And I know that I don't want to raise my children or have to explain to my grandchildren why we let America get to this point. It's such an important moment to think about where you are in history. I mean, you've been out there publicly. That has not been easy, I imagine. Some of your former colleagues have also been out there publicly speaking out. What would you tell those of your former colleagues who are concerned but haven't come out publicly about the importance of doing that at this point in time? I think about, and the Washington Post put out a good story today about that, Jen, and Mm -hmm. There's a, there are a few particular quotes that stuck out to me, but towards the last half of the article, there were former Trump aides, anonymous former Trump aides, but I will point out that they were given masculine pronouns. Mm. So, namely, if primarily men who were speaking with the Washington Post mm-hmm. anonymously about how they might want to speak out if he is the nominee, or they don't think it's worth speaking out because they'll lose clients. Mm-hmm. And what I'll say to them, you know, I I do understand a fear of retribution. I do fear backlash. I I do understand their fear of of backlash. But when we think about this next election in 2024, I don't like to play a doomsday hypothesis, Mm -hmm. but it does look like he is going to be the Republican nominee Mm -hmm. as of right now. If Donald Trump is elected president again in 2024, I do fear that it will be the last election where we're voting for democracy, because if he is elected again, I don't think that we'll be voting under the same constitution that we would be if we are vote, if Joe Biden is elected in 2024. Are there eight, I mean, there are a number of you who have spoken out. Are you talking to, I know the Washington Post talked about this and we'll talk more about that, but do you meet, do you have a group chat? How do you engage about what you're going to do to prevent him from becoming president again? No, I think, uh, at least in my position, I haven't been very involved with, you know, and to my knowledge, at least there's not an organized effort, although I would love for there to be one. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think on a larger scale, this this isn't just a Republican Party issue. Mm-hmm. I think right now it is so important for Democrats and for Republicans to come together to to bring light to this issue. You know, this isn't this isn't about political parties. I hope that there's one day where you and I can sit at this table and we can talk policy and have a productive policy conversation because I'm sure that we would be able to hopefully have a very productive conversation on that. But this next election, we're, we're looking at a ballot or we're potentially going to be looking at a ballot or we're fighting for our democracy mm-hmm. or the candidate that we're voting for and Americans have to vote for is either going to be able to sustain our democracy or is going to 
let it die. We are going to talk more about this. We have to take a quick break. Stay right where you are. Uh, I have so much more to obviously talk to Cassidy about after the break, including the Washington Post story you just referenced, which we really (laughs) need to dig into. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Here's something that tells you a lot about Donald Trump. The people sounding the alarm the loudest about him are the people who have worked most closely with him. That's always a bad sign. And today, the Washington Post reported on the frustration among many former Trump aides who have been trying to warn voters about the dangers of electing him again. Cassie Hutchinson just mentioned this story, and I want to just drill down on it because it's such an interesting one people should read. Josh Jossie writes in that story, quote, so far, Trump has surged toward the GOP nomination, even as former aides critical of him have blanketed the airwaves, giving scathing speeches, testifying on camera in front of congressional committees, and penning books, shaking off the kinds of condemnations that could mortally wounds another politician in almost any other presidential year. Dossie interviewed 16 former Trump advisors and found, quote, they are grappling with how they can puncture Trump's candidacy in 2024, whether they can or should coordinate with one another, and whether their voices will even matter. Back with me is former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. So this story has so much in it, including it quotes Trump's former uh, chief White House chief of staff, John Kelly, who, of course, had the same job that your former boss, Mark Meadows, had. And Kelly said in this story, I'm going to read it, what's going on in the country that a single person thinks that this guy would be still a good president when he said the things he said and done the things he's done? It's beyond my comprehension. He has the support he has. Do you have similar feelings of surprise of the level of support Trump still has out there? I do and I don't. You know, there is a massive constituency of Trump voters that were never going to change their minds. Mm -hmm. I think that it is sad that we haven't changed a larger swath of the population's minds. And we have to think about that as we approach the election in Mm -hmm. 2024. Donald Trump showed us who he was in 2016 when he went down the escalator in Trump Tower in New York City. I admit that I was blinded to a lot of his faults. You know, I I write a lot in my book. My book is full of unflattering truths and things that I wish that I could change about my past. But I think what's important now is that I have the role that I have. I have the hindsight that I have, and I want people to continue calling attention to this. Because with the hindsight that I have, there's no reason that he should have been elected in 2016. There's no reason that it, the election in 2020 should have been close. And that's coming from somebody who worked with worked for him until January 20th, 2021. But when we think about this next election, we we need to change the tone of the conversation. Because what talking do you mean by that? Because in my view, at least, talking at people or continuing to harp on his so, so-called character flaws— mm-hmm. Sometimes, in my opinion, and from what I've experienced, that sort of drills people in more to their support of him. They get more defensive over him. And I know that because that's how I used to feel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really until, you know, I went through the trials with the committee the first few times and eventually switched legal counsel from Trump-funded legal counsel to my own independent legal counsel. And it wasn't really until I retained my own independent legal counsel when I was finally free of everything Trump world where my horizon began to open and I felt that I wasn't being talked at. I felt that not only my lawyers, but members on the January 6th committee, 
at that point, I had a lot of faults. I had a lot of, I had made a lot of mistakes, mm -hmm. but people had listened to me and people helped me get to the point where I'm at now, where I see it clearly. I see that he is a dangerous man. I see that he has severe character flaws, but those character flaws go one step further. His character flaws make him uniquely unsuited for the office of the mm -hmm. presidency and should be nowhere near the Oval Office ever again. So you have, as you just said, you've gone through this journey over the last several years, which has not been an easy one. And I think what you touched on there is that people don't like to be talked at who may be his supporters. So what do you think the argument, you know, there's a lot of people watching out there who are wondering, like, how do we bring Trump supporters over and say, this guy is scary, he's dangerous? What is the argument that should be made? You know, I... I wish that I had the keys to the kingdom on them because I think we would be in a much better place. Mm -hmm. I think it, there's a few things, Jen. And in the Washington Post article, there's a quote from General Kelly, who mm -hmm. I think is a, an American patriot. He has served his country in many mm -hmm. capacities and I think phenomenal man and public servant. But there's a quote, and I'm, I am paraphrasing here, but he said something to the effect of he spoke out against, he spoke out about what Trump had said about members of the military. Yeah. And it was about a half a day news story. Mm -hmm. What I say to something like that in my experience is you can't just talk once. And the media is a very useful tool, but we need to be able to expand our horizons and expand the way that we're communicating with people. Yeah. Because saying something once doesn't create change. We need to have conversations with people and we need, sometimes they're smaller conversations. Sometimes we need to go into swing states and have mm -hmm. conversations with people because the media can only reach so far. Yeah, neighbor to neighbor is often very powerful, uh, most powerful. Dossie also writes in his story, which I thought was interesting and maybe it's going to alarm some <laughs> Democrats out there, that, well, Many of these aides he spoke with don't want Trump to be president again. They are loath to be viewed as helping a Democrat. And that, you know, members of this group, including former Attorney General Bill Barr, have argued Trump is both unfit, of course, to serve, has probably committed crimes, but they may still vote for him over a Democrat. Is that kind of, is that what you're hearing from former aides, some who have spoken out and some who have not? Well, to be completely candid, I don't often speak with any of my former <laughs> colleagues, but from what I read and from articles like this, and also from my experience, you know, I, there was a point that I felt that way too. I'm not proud of that. Um, but what I will say to that too, though, is that is an egregious form of partisanship. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump isn't a Republican. And yes, maybe by name he considers himself a Republican. But Donald Trump cares more about authoritarian rule than he does our rule of law. Yeah. He doesn't care about preserving our Constitution. He cares about leveraging it for his own power and his own gain. So when we look at this next election, we need to think about if we want our democracy to survive, who do we elect that we can put in the Oval Office that has the character, integrity, and grit to be able to carry our country through this moment in time. And that person isn't Donald Trump. Well, as, as you've said, he's likely the nominee. I, I know you've been reluctant to say who you're going to vote for, but would are you leaving the door open to voting for Joe Biden if it's between the two of them? I will say my door is completely shut to voting for Donald Trump. And the only reason that I will not endorse a candidate right now is because I still am hopeful that Donald Trump does not end up being the nominee next year. I think our country will be in a much better place overall, not just for myself, but the ticket and the future of our country will be. 
But what I will say, too, though, is I think everybody should vote for Joe Biden if they want our democracy to survive. That's a powerful statement. Cassidy Hutchinson, thank you for joining me here this evening. Cassidy's book, Enough, is available wherever you get your books. And coming up, as the Democratic freakout over 2024 continues, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir is providing a roadmap on how they can win. Governor Bashir joins me after a very quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. For a long time, abortion rights was an issue that even Democrats thought would only appeal to women in the suburbs. I feel like we heard that every election cycle. It was still seen as a divisive issue across the country and one that would help turn out the base in purple and blue states, but not much, do much else. But there are a number of races that have disproved that in recent months and even years, including a ballot initiative in Ohio where voters chose to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. And on that very same day, just a couple weeks ago, Democratic Governor Andy Bashir was reelected in Kentucky, a state, by the way, where Donald Trump defeated Joe Biden just three years ago by 26 points. That's a huge margin. And as much as his campaign focused on things like the economy, including the local impact and education, his closing argument was on abortion. And that closing argument came in the form of a searing straight-to-camera ad featuring a young woman named Hadley. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. That message didn't appeal to just women in the suburbs of Kentucky. That message and the contrast Bashir drew with the extreme views of his opponent, Daniel Cameron, helped him win in Kentucky with 53% of the vote. So for anyone out there who's questioning whether abortion rights should be central to the Democratic argument and central to the argument everywhere in the country, the evidence is against you. Just today, we saw brand new polling from the Wall Street Journal showing that support for abortion access is near a record high in this country. According to that poll, 55% of Americans now say that a pregnant woman should be able to get an abortion for any reason. Joining me now is the recently reelected governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir. Governor, thank you so much for joining me this evening. I know so many people are excited to hear from you. I wanted to start with 
the issue of abortion rights, because one of the things that was so interesting about your race to me is that there's this false assumption out there, in my view, that abortion is an issue that should only be used to appeal to suburban women, that those are the only people who care about it. But you made this very effective argument on the issue that was a fact that was very powerful with a wide swath of voters in your state, including white, non-college educated men. So what lessons do you think Democrats should take away from how you talked about abortion in your race? Well, thanks for having me on. And, and certainly, I believe that our race was a rejection of extremism, a rejection of anger politics. And, and I believe when you look at how uh, we talked uh, about abortion in Kentucky, it comes down to basic empathy. See, in Kentucky right now, we have one of the most restrictive laws in the entire country, where there are no options even for victims of rape and incest. You look at, at those individuals uh, violated, just about every American believes that at least they should have some options. It doesn't come down to pro this or pro that, but just a basic level of caring uh, for somebody who has been through way too much trauma. You also, your race was also interesting in a lot of ways, but one of the issues that came up was, of course, trans rights. I mean, you did not hesitate to veto a sweeping anti-trans bill passed by the Kentucky state legislature, but they, your opponents still kind of came after—they also, because of that, probably came after you on that. It didn't work. What does that tell you about the effectiveness of this kind of an attack and, um, you know, this approach from a lot of Republicans out there? Well, all children are children of God. That's what my faith teaches me, and I was going to stand up especially for the most marginalized children that didn't deserve either a state legislature or an entire campaign and all these super PACs picking on them. Uh, these are individuals that are already uh, at the margins. The studies show suffer um, more uh, mental health issues, are, are, are more uh, at risk for suicide. We ought to be in the suicide prevention uh, business and, and not um, uh, further harming uh, kids who are going through uh, too much. I, I did it because it was the right thing. But I will say that the way these super PACs and my opponent went about their campaign was just mean. And it was gross. And it was cruel. And people don't like that. That is yeah. not who we are. And, and this ought to be a message that you can't scapegoat people just to get um, uh, folks angry. And it's wrong. Right? Think about what some people are doing, trying to dehumanize other human beings, trying to turn people against each other, to, to even foster hate and anger towards another American here, another Kentuckian. Why? So you can elect one more person that has a certain letter behind their name. Listen, this can't be right and left. Some things have to be basic right and wrong, and we've got to get our politics back to where we ask the basic question of right and wrong. There's got to be, uh, there's got to be limits. I mean, this can't be a ruleless type of of game because it's so much more than a game. Ask any of these kids. Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you a 2024 question, of course, uh, because there are <laughs> questions out there in Democratic circles about whether Joe Biden is the right person or the best person to run against Trump in 2024. What do you make of that? Well, that's going to be the race. We, we uh, pundits all do kind of the hand wringing and the who this or the or the who that. That's what it's going to be. Uh, and and the president is going to have to get out and and talk about people's lives. We live in a pessimistic society. You know, you ask that question, right direction or wrong track, it's almost a worthless question. Now, the question should be, how are you doing? Right? Do you have an opportunity at a better job? 
Uh, do you feel safer in your communities? Are you excited about the opportunities that your kids are going to have? We have great things going on in Kentucky. We have a record-breaking economy, our best years for economic development ever. With the help of the bipartisan infrastructure law, we are doing three what, what people called impossible infrastructure projects all at the same time. One of the reasons that I get to be governor another four years is people are excited about their future. And, and you know, it lets them breathe a little bit. And, and push out, you know, some of the cynicism and say, you know, there is a chance that my kids are going to be better off, that are going to have more opportunity, that the kids of Kentucky are going to have more opportunity. And I think that's hopefully what we'll be talking about in 2024. You know, the right type of race is about two individuals that ought to be sharing their ideas about how to make the country better or a track record on how to do it and not the types of, of, of attacks that certainly uh, my opponent in our race used, and I hope that we won't see on a national level next year. It may be worse on a national level, believe it or not. But Governor Andy Bashir, yeah. thank you. I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving with your family as well. Happy Thanksgiving to you and everybody out there. Enjoy. Coming up as we remember the life and legacy of Rosalind Carter, I'll show you something she told Meet the Press back in 1976 that really stuck with me. We're back after a quick break. You've likely heard this quote before, and it may resonate now more than ever. A leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. Those words were made famous by former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who died yesterday at the age of 96. She may not have been the one who was elected leader of the free world, but she was one half of what Carter biographer Jonathan Alter describes as the longest, closest, and arguably most productive high-level political partnership in American history. Famously nicknamed the Steel Magnolia, I love that nickname, Mrs. Carter's soft-spoken approach packed a powerful punch as she helped redefine the role of the modern First Lady. She was the first to set up an office in the East Wing. She was the first to attend cabinet meetings. She was only the second to testify before Congress. She challenged heads of state on human rights abuses, and she would ultimately become this country's fiercest advocate for mental health care. History will not necessarily remember her at all as a controversial figure, but perhaps one of the greatest lessons in her legacy is that all of those things she did required a willingness to be controversial, especially when you want to affect change. And you can see that in an answer she gave during an appearance on Meet the Press during her husband's campaign before she even became First Lady. You've said that you liked Eleanor Roosevelt. She was one of your heroines. She was very controversial at times. Uh, would you, as First Lady, shy away from controversy, or would you mind? I don't think I could ever compare myself with Eleanor Roosevelt. But there are so many things that I see that need to be done. Um, I don't, I don't think I have ever shied away from controversy. I don't think Jimmy has ever shied away from controversy. Jimmy has always told me that if you do anything, you're going to be criticized. The only way not to be criticized is just to be mediocre, never do anything. And, uh, but the things that I want to work with are the mental health program. I've become, I've worked with that for a long time. I'm very concerned about that. I want to work with programs of the elderly. Everybody talks about the elderly, but nothing gets done for them. It, to me, it's urgent. Um, I don't know. I learned when Jimmy was governor that I could do anything. I could help with any program because you're in a position of, an inf of influence. You're in a position to see what the needs are. And so many times you don't even have to do anything. You just ask somebody. Nobody ever turned me down. 
controversial for the right reasons. The only way to not be criticized is to be mediocre. Those are good words to live by. Rosalind Carter's life is a reminder of all of that. She helped take people where they didn't want necessarily want to go, but where they were supposed to go. All a good lesson for everybody leading into next year. And that does it for me tonight. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders.